very pleased today on the Warning Podcast to welcome Peter Hamby. Peter is a founder of Puck News, along with a group of other distinguished journalists who are breaking the news model. Formerly, he was a national political reporter at CNN, and he was the host of Good Luck America on Snapchat. I think Peter is one of the smartest political journalists and analysts that observes American politics, writes about it, talks about it. I've known him for a really long time, and I'm very pleased that he's joined us today to have a conversation about what's happening in America, what's happening in the news media, and how it shapes everything that you see around us. Peter, welcome. Thanks for having me, Steve. Good to see you. Well, I'm up here in New Hampshire. Um, as we know, I am helping Dean Phillips run for president in a Democratic primary. And of course, you're covering that race with Puck News. I think it says something interesting about the media model of 2024 that you are a journalist, but you are also an entrepreneur. Uh, You are a founder of a media company. The Warning is a media company property. I'm involved in a campaign, and here we are on these platforms having a conversation that's going to reach a lot of people completely outside of the structures that were so dominant in the early part of our, our political career. And I, I am a huge fan, as you know, of Puck News. I like reading it. I loved the writing style, the Vanity Fair pop that John Kelly brings to it. I think it's an exceptional news product. I've recommended it to the warning community over and over again. But why don't you talk about Puck News, what it is, how it came to be, and how Puck News operates differently and sees the world, and what its frame is with regard to covering this moment, because it's unique. That's a good question. I sometimes start this question by remembering uh, a toast I gave at a friend's wedding back in 2018. And at that point, I had left CNN. Uh, I was at Snapchat. I was hosting my Snapchat show, which is geared toward mostly Gen Z. Um, and I made a self-deprecating joke in the wedding toast, as you do, about how I was no longer a journalist. Uh, I was a content creator now, <laughs> uh, living in the influencer space on social media and smartphones. But the idea of the journalist as a creator is central to how Puck thinks about our news organization. Um, we hired, as you mentioned, a bunch of really talented veteran journalists uh who are also muscular writers which i think is a you know forgotten skill some some sometimes um julia yaffe to cover foreign policy matt bellany covering hollywood teddy schleifer covering money uh we have people covering very discreet beats and they own those beats um and john kelly uh who is our founder and ceo uh, who was an old editor of mine at Vanity Fair's The Hive, which was Vanity Fair's digital property. And I wrote about politics for them every now and then. And he was just telling me over the years, like journalists give away so much of their insights and content for free, you know, especially older ones. And that's a, that's a founding problem of journalism uh, in the age of the internet. Uh, news organizations decided to give away their content for free. Um, look, we as journalists feel that we have a public responsibility. Uh, that's why we're called the fourth estate. Um, you know, it's seen as a public good. And at the time, you can be like, oh, yeah, sure, we should have put our stories on the internet for free. But that led to um, some bad incentives and in the current world we live in, where ad supported media is often driven by clickbait. Uh, social media feeds are polluted by takes and bad actors and like, you know, people are willing to fill that void with whatever slop is out there. And so John looked at the world and he said, people are willing to pay for good journalism that calls balls and strikes, that is informed by experience and wisdom. And all of you writers who I want you to come on this ship with me, like you bring a following. Um, and so, 
you know, I had, you're, you're among these people, but you know, I was in CNN for 10 years and I've been, I've been in politics now as long as you, but like a pretty long time at this point and had an email list. And like, every time I would write an article for CNN, I had a BCC email list and you get these emails all the time uh, where it's like, I would write a story about, you know, at the time, like Obama or Mitt Romney and blast it out to a bunch of people. Don's proposition was, I think people would be willing to throw a few bucks to actually read this stuff because people like you. And the business model is if even a handful of people are willing to pay a certain amount for this writing, you can build a business on top of that. And so basically, you know, it's a combination of the Substack idea where people pay to follow writers and reporters they want, but blended together with a traditional newsroom model where we have editors and editorial standards. Um, and so, you know, we're starting small and nimble, but that's the right way to grow a startup, especially in this economy. And it's turning into something that I think people really want because, you know, again, our reporters have great sources. We're willing to tell the truth and not just be beholden to orthodoxies on the internet or revenue chasing business models out there. And all of our reporters have a, a good following and expertise where people trust us. Um, but we're still growing, you know, like if I was in New Hampshire right now and I went up to a man on the street in Manchester and said I was getting some quotes for Puck, they'd be like, you know, what the F is Puck, you know? So there's still those like growing pains you have when you're a new brand in the universe. But for people listening, I would compare the business model to something like The Athletic or The Information. These are sort of subscription-based news organizations where you're paying for journalism and journalists are the creators at the center of that business model. And that feels good for me, at least, uh, you know, the business model might not work for every news organization, but uh, it's working for us. Can you talk about at the beginning of the launch of a company like this, you're sitting in a room, it's a business, the business needs to be profitable in a time where trust has collapsed between the American people and literally every institution in the country. Even the military now is in a, is in a rapid state of decline with its, with its trust numbers. Are you conscious of that as you and your partners in a new news organization in the beginning, in the room, do you talk about it? Do you talk about the standards, the integrity issues that you want to bring to life at Puck that are elemental, right, as news values, but antithetical for a lot of quote unquote news organizations in this age where the easy buck is the freak show dollar and is the nut job dollar is the conflict dollar and the angertainment dollar. And, and Puck is not going down that, that road. So it is clearly, in my estimation, moored by some type of ethical standard that's not a written policy, but that's a core conviction amongst the group of people that sat in the room. And I think it's evident in the sophistication of the writing uh, the nuance of, of the takes and the real insights uh, that come from the publication that illuminate in a spectacular fashion what's happening at the connection points of America's, uh, America's power uh, cast, you know, which is Silicon Valley, Wall Street, Washington, and Los Angeles. I have so many thoughts and opinions over this over the years, right? Going from CNN to Snapchat, and I still work at Snapchat along with Puck and, and then Puck as well. The number one thing I think that you're getting at is respect for the audience and the readers, uh, which we have at Puck. But also, you know, I think this was Snapchat too. I try to, as much as we live in this new media world where you are competing for attention against not just the New York Times and CNN, you're competing against Netflix and your friends' text messages and, you, you know, games and sports and your lot. Like, 
we're just in an infinitesimal, endless competition for attention. Uh, and so I've tried to, in that world, still hold on to, uh, which I something I think is, is a declining and disappearing virtue, uh, which is really trying to tell the truth, not worry about angering, you know, one uh partisan group or another uh and just and also just listening uh and, and trusting your journalism instincts that have been honed over many years to be like i think this is a cliche but it's the old woodward and bernstein thing the best obtainable version of the truth uh what that means is going out into the world uh gathering information and not leading with the headline like i think a lot of journalism now is like um people wanting to write a story uh and there's no there there you know starting with the headline and trying to fill it in rather than going out into the world and listening to people and reading a bunch of things and gathering stuff and then being like okay what's the headline from all of that from the from the bottom up um and so i think a good example of this and i've talked about this a decent amount uh is cnn which by the way i love and root for cnn they were so great to my career they sent me out on the campaign trail when I was in my 20s to cover McCain when you were out on that campaign. Um, and I owe them a lot. But I think in the Trump and and Jeff Zucker years, everything was a hair on fire, volume 11 emergency. And look, I know you and, and a lot of your listeners also believe that. Um, but I do think that 10% of the time, maybe, uh, you know, you can turn the volume down and that look that for a news brand like CNN, the most trusted name in, in, in news um, during those years, it just veered a lot into outrage opinion. Um, and I think they lost trust with audience because, you know, they didn't totally <laughs> respect the audience's appetite for the things they're talking about nuance um respect for different opinions sometimes uh and cnn's trust according to multiple polls declined significantly uh over the trump years and i think that's not just because he was or sorry that cnn was subject to attacks from donald trump all the time calling them you know fake news and the enemy of the people trust also declined among democrats and independence. Um, and that's not true for other news organizations. Uh, by the way, the, the most trusted news organization in the United States, Steve, according to the Reuters Institute of Journalism and the Knight Foundation, I believe, um, is not any of the news organizations we know or think of. Well, number one is the Weather Channel, because it's just the facts. Here's the weather. You can see it. Um, number two is the BBC, which is not an American news organization and is the number one most trusted news organization in the U.S. And like, you know, the BBC might have challenges here and there, but they don't allow their reporters to just tweet their opinions all the time. Uh, they are very, you know, associated press style newsroom where it's here's the facts and we have cameras in the, on the ground and places around the world to show you these stories. And I think that kind of behavior over time is the kind of stuff that generates trust. And the only other thing I'll say on this is I was at the Iowa State Fair back in August, um, you know, covering all of the hapless Republicans who aren't beating Donald Trump right now. Um, and, you know, I, I was stopped by lots of people there at the fair in quote unquote flyover country who like my Snapchat show a lot. And I was like, just tell me why. And these are these weren't just Gen Z. This was like, you know, millennials too. They're like, you seem fair. Like there's just, every time I turn on this channel or that channel, every time I see a headline, I feel like it is either outrage clickbait or politically biased. And, you know, some people just say that reflexively. But they're like, sometimes you write fair and or you do fair and critical stories about Democrats too. And like, even if you only do it a few times, like that suggests to me you know, that like, you don't think I'm an idiot, uh, you know? Um, and so I just, it's an old school belief for somebody who works in new media, but I do believe that respecting the audience is a very, very important thing for journalists to do. 
viewers and readers, a lot of them are dumb, <laughs> but a lot of them aren't. Uh, and they, you know, they can uh, sniff out what feels like, uh, you know, a fake narrative or, you know, an outrage driven narrative versus what, what feels right. And I think that's sort of what I'm hewing closely to. I've used the word Trump industrial complex to describe what's come together over the course of the seven years. And so I'll use the group that I founded as a case in point in that uh, there's an old saying, uh, every cause becomes a business, becomes a racket. And so the cause, right, raised $100 million, where 85% of it is spent where it's supposed to be, jump forward a couple of years, you have people representing that organization, the brand. They're as venomous and crazed as anything on the far right. They're as nasty. 93 cents of every dollar goes into the pockets of the people that run it. It's a reciprocal grift, and a lot of these people are the same people. What I hear you describing when you talk about CNN and the breach of trust, I assess that as the result of profound cultural condescension, which is just dripped on huge parts of the country in a frame that implies they're stupid, that they're immoral. The vaccine debate is a perfect example of this. It should not be mystifying in a country where one million people are dead from opioids, which were told to the people who took them were safe because of guidance from the FDA, that a few years after that, including the history with African Americans and experimentation, the Tuskegee experiments, that when the government says, you have to take this in this country, and rightfully so, particularly with the tragedy of the opioid epidemic, there's going to be skepticism. And so none of that was carefully considered, reported with any nuance. It was all always, right, the rubes are rebelling over and over and over again. And so I want to ask this question because Joe Scarborough said something that I thought was very important, and he should be credited with saying it. And I watched and experienced this exact thing sitting on a set on MSNBC for all the years that Trump rose. And it was this. Every single Republican came on air. When the camera was off, they said, Trump is crazy. He'll destroy the party and probably the country. And when the camera light went on, they were his obedient servants. He could do no wrong. What Joe Scarborough said, and you know this is true, is that every, and he said, every Democrat who comes on my show says one thing on camera and something else entirely as it relates to Biden. So my, so my question is this, full stop. We talk a lot about misinformation. CNN has talked a lot about misinformation. MSNBC's talked a lot about misinformation. We talk about misinformation on Twitter. We talk about misinformation from the Russians. Is it fair to evaluate the power class of the country, the juncture point between the media and the politics in this moment in time, engaged in what functionally is a broad misinformation campaign? Because I know, I, I, I am, I am I'm looking into the camera, I, I am telling you, right, that I, I know for certain, right, the people I'm talking about, right, say one thing, which is every Democratic member of Congress, they say one thing privately and another publicly 
with concerns about about the president, right, and his ability to beat Donald Trump. Nobody says they don't respect Joe Biden. Nobody says that Joe Biden is just completely wrong on the policies. What everybody says is they don't think he's going to beat Donald Trump. And it's remarkable that they think it's best to keep it a secret from the country when, in fact, 80% of the country is literally screaming, we do not want the choice of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Don't want it. So if you want to ask me what the poll says, all of it accumulated, what does the polling say in this election cycle? I'm going to tell you. What it says is, the American people don't want Joe Biden to run for a second term, and he's losing to Donald Trump, which is an incredible achievement considering the sexual abuse, the insurrection, the 35,000 lies, the madness, the insanity, and all of it. The extremist movement is hotter, it's better organized, it's better funded. This Trump campaign is not shambolic. This Trump campaign is lean and mean and running to win. And so my, so my question is, am I right to think about this through that misinformation prism? Because what I see is the power class of the country in an argument with 80% of the American people on a question that they're being really clear about, and everybody is saying one thing in private, and another thing in public at a level that I've never seen in my political career, with one exception. And that was the lead up to the Republican nomination when the Republicans were going from opposed to getting in line by the worst person to ever be president and the biggest threat to this country since the Confederacy. So nothing you said just now, Steve, is controversial. I will say that. And by the way, after I answer, I I don't know if this is the first pod you've hosted since being uh, with with Dean Phillips in New Hampshire, but I'm sure you have gleaned some anecdotes from voters up there on this topic. Um, and I'd like to hear those too. Uh, so I guess the one thing I might quibble with is the term disinformation but what what i agree with is i think the disconnect between the power elite in washington and i include parts of the press in that um has never been more removed from the everyday experience of most americans um on the media side you know uh and i you probably saw this again in new hampshire uh, out on the campaign trail with a lot of people in the press um the Washington political press still thinks they're the center of the universe um, in terms of media consumption, when in fact they are just a part of it um, and a shrinking part of it, at least uh, on the on the cable news front. Um, you are correct that there's this curious delta, um, and I'm talking about Democratic voters here, between do you want Joe Biden to be the nominee uh, and sorry, do you want somebody else to become the nominee? Uh, And when presented with no other options, they say, sure, I'd be fine with it. Um, But they're not even that fine with it right now. Gallup came out with a poll last week that showed Biden losing support among voters under 30, dropping 11 points in a month. uh, And his approval rating is now 37%, uh, which is Donald Trump level territory. The White House, in my conversations with them, especially in the last week, where you have this like confluence of young progressives revolting against Biden because of his support for Israel, a whole other topic. Um, you have just generally dismal poll numbers. Uh, and then you have Dean Phillips arriving on the scene. And their take is approval ratings in modern partisan polarizing times don't really matter. What matters is you get to next November and it's a choice. And the choice is what matters. People don't need to be inspired. They just need to know that it's either Biden, who, yeah, is probably old. <laughs> Sorry, is old. And Donald Trump, who's a maniac. And that that is their perspective on this. But it's it's 
it's kind of freaky to think about if you're a Democratic voter, if you look at the math. Um, the presidential race in 2020 was decided by, what, 44,000 votes in Arizona, uh, Michigan, <laughs> and Georgia. Um, if you compare 2016 to 2020, what did Donald Trump get uh, in the, and this is in the popular vote, but what did he get in 2016? He hit 46% of the vote. Uh, sorry, he hit, he hit 46% of the vote uh, in, in 2016. In 2020, he basically hit the same number. He's got a ceiling. The difference is that people stayed home or voted third party and weren't inspired by Hillary Clinton. Biden was able to go over 46% uh, in 2020. But, you know, if young people don't show up in the numbers they need in those key states, and if you've got people like Cornell West and RFK Jr. on the, on the third party sidelines, or sorry, waving the flag of, of third parties, um, you know, that brings the number below Trump's ceiling, possibly. And it's pretty scary. I will say, and, and I, I agree with you, I think people say one thing in the green room and something else on television. There are a few reasons for that. Uh, and by the way, not to plug Puck again, but like one of my colleagues, Lauren Sherman, said one of the the promises of Puck is that we write about what's happening between the press releases. Um, you know, we say the quiet part out loud. We are willing to say what people are talking about in the green room before they go on the set of Morning Joe. But some of this is careerism. Uh, and like C. Wright Mills has written about, wrote about this like 60 years ago. <laughs> like this is not a new uh, piece of criticism uh, from media critics. But, you know, if you are a young reporter who wants to climb the ladder, if you are a strategist who wants to make some extra money, uh, if you uh, want to become a cable news contributor, uh, there are things within the received wisdom of Washington and New York that you can say that keep you within the guideposts of a career going up the ladder. Um, and so you do pull punches. You know, when I talked to Dean uh, last week for this piece I'm writing for Puck, he said there's a, quote, culture of silence among his Democratic colleagues in the House around Biden's age. Um, look, people like their committee assignments. People like being able to write a check to build something back in their district. People like getting invited to the cool parties. Sorry, that's like an understated thing, Steve. Like people don't want to get like shunned from the parties, you know, once you get to DC, uh, whether you're in the press or in politics. And so, yeah, I think people say, and every focus group shows this, most normal people think Biden is really old. And also, if you talk to, I had this experience in Iowa, um, and this is also probably a, a sore spot for Democrats or a worrying point for Democrats. Um, yeah, Trump is old and that Trump is like slurring his words every now and then. And Trump, by the way, makes no sense when he talks. But you talk to voters, like just normal people out there. They could be Democrats, Republicans, non-voters even. Like they see a difference with Biden that they don't think with Trump. They think Trump is like, energetic and he's like with it and they, voters don't really think that about Biden. These are not my words, by the way, and these are not your words. These are the words of Democrats and focus groups that I've talked to. These are the words of young voters. I was on the campus of the University of Wisconsin a few weeks ago doing some filming for my Snapchat show and just asking Gen Z, are you excited about a rematch? Because that's what you're going to get. No one is. Now, a lot of those people said they would still show up and vote for Biden if that was the choice, which validates the White House message. But yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I would love to hear, be a fly on the wall in some, some conversations among elected Democrats in the House and Senate about Biden's age, because I'm sure they're worried about it. So here, here's my question, right, on, on this. So I kind of have a test for journalists that I've applied, right, during the years I've operated at a presidential campaign level, once I kind of figured out what I didn't know, what I did, and felt like I was experienced around this very weird track. And my test is, what journalists am I talking to that could do this? If they were, if they had become right, campaign people, right, that would have been able to do this. And it's a really small list. 
you are on that list. You would have been a really good political consultant. Chuck Todd would have been, Bob Costa would have been, Ryan Lizza would have been, right? people who really are deep, Tim Alberta would have been, people who are deeply, deeply, deeply knowledgeable about politics, the country, the culture, its history, its sociology, its generations, all, all of that stuff. What, one of the fault lines, like in presidential politics, right, just as a, as a philosophy, right, is the nature of a presidential campaign. Is it a referendum on the president or is it a choice between candidates? I have always believed it is a choice, not a referendum on the, on the incumbent. And that's a really important thing to recognize. Now, the Biden campaign is saying that when the choice is clear, the choice will be Biden versus Trump. I'm going to tell you what I think the, the, the failure of logic is here. Why is Donald Trump winning today in an election that's going to be about a choice? Because I think the one thing that is clear, there's nothing new to learn about either Donald Trump or President Biden. There, there is no mystery left in our relationship as a people with either man. There is, there is no spring of discovery ahead. There is no Beaujolais of delight, right, about the whimsies of their personalities yet, yet to be discovered. It is. It is. So in a two-team league, how do they account for the fact that they're losing to that team. That's who you're losing to, right? They're not losing to Abraham Lincoln. They're not losing to John Kennedy. They're not losing to Ronald Reagan. They're not losing to Franklin Roosevelt. They're losing by nine points to Donald Trump in 2023. But I have a simple question. What's the explanation for that? Th because they've done everything right? Because the American people are crazy? What, what, tell me what the rationale for that is. Well, look, I think, one, Trump is winning in a series of recent polls. I don't think they're all plus nine. Um, it's going to be closer than that. But here are two responses. One, um, Kamala Harris channeled this on 60 Minutes on Sunday. She did an interview with Bill Whitaker. Um, it was fine. But <laughs> she said what the Biden White House does quite frequently, uh, which is voters might not be psyched about Joe Biden. Um but once we are able to communicate what we've accomplished, then they'll come around and then the choice will be evident. By the way, Steve, I think that is very important for younger voters who don't like either political party, institutions, whatever, are very meh, not just on Biden, but the Democratic Party. But they do care about climate change and guns and the economy and the administration's efforts on student loans. And so... Kamala was saying, once we are able to remind people of that, they will come home. And they also point to abortion uh, as a big topic here. And they cite the 2022 midterms where, and this gets back to the approval rating thing, Biden's approval rating sucked. But in the key states and the key Senate races, Democrats showed up because abortion was on the ballot. Um, and by the way, we'll see next Tuesday or in a couple of Tuesdays, if that's true, in Virginia, which is like, you know, a swing state on the state level, because that whole race is about abortion. So we'll see if that issue is st still resonant. If it's not, that could be a warning sign for Democrats heading into next year. But a big difference with 2022 is that turnout 
the turnout expectations between two, the two parties have really changed since like Absolutely. 2008 when we were out there. So in a midterm election, it used to be uh, Republicans would blow Democrats away on turnout because Democrats rely on low propensity voters who don't really show up in midterm elections and off-year elections. But Republicans have these older voters who pay attention and they vote every single election. That's kind of flipped on its head now. So Democrats are really engaged post-2016, like post-Trump. Like they they seem to understand the stakes, and so they show up. And that's helped by the fact that people forget, like, yeah, Trump is a Republican and is winning the Republican primary and has a lot of Republican support. But there are a lot of people who like Trump who, like, weren't, like, typical Republican voters before 2016. And so when Trump is on the ballot, he has more people showing up in a presidential year. So the turnout expectations are kind of flipped. So I think one reason a lot of those Republicans lost in 2022 and Democrats won, it wasn't just abortion. It was also that people stayed home. Trump supporters stayed home because he wasn't on the ballot. They're not going to show up and vote for like Blake Masters. Like, as much as he's Trumpy, he's not Donald Trump himself. Um, a lot of Trump supporters like Donald Trump and Jesus in that order and like no one else. <laughs> and so uh, that's a problem next year because he'll be on the ballot. And he, again, he will always have that 46 to 47% stealing. Democrats have to have somebody who can get above that number uh, and a little bit higher because of the electoral college. And, you know, Right now, Biden is the only guy, and your and your boy Dean. <laughs> um, but it's it's pretty scary. I mean, this is like this. It's going to turn on a few, you know, ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand votes in the series of states. And I do want to, by the way, call out what you said earlier about the Trump campaign. Like your list as a journalist who deals with the Trump campaign, um, and, and I didn't like actually deal with them that much. Uh, the last time around in part because they were so like ham-handed and all over the place. Um, you know, Chris Lasavita is there now. Uh, yeah, Donald Trump is facing over 90 criminal counts, but his campaign is much more well-oiled. And I know this sounds a crazy thing to say about Donald Trump. And, and by the way, he said all kinds of like inflammatory and racist and, you know, things that inspire violence lately. <laughs> um, but it's more disciplined. It is more disciplined. Um, and they kicked the shit out of Ron DeSantis uh, and like out of the gate. And they, they just, uh, it's a Brushed better them. campaign than it was in Brushed 2020. Them. To answer your question, uh, it, it is, it's going to be a razor's edge election, I think. And Democrats better hope. And they think that again, it'll be a choice. They just need to communicate their issues better. But this also gets back to the stuff we're talking about at the very beginning of this podcast. How do you communicate um, the chips act or how do you communicate your climate investments in the hardest environment in world history to get a message out? You know, I mean, it's just so hard to distribute a message in this environment. And there's the old Roger Ailes famous saying, the orchestra pit theory of politics. You know, you have two candidates on a stage. One candidate says, I have a solution for Middle East peace. The other candidate falls in the orchestra pit. Which one is the press going to cover? The gaffe, you know, uh, Hunter Biden, you know, it's just like there's so many distractions. People are on TikTok. People are on Netflix. People are on WhatsApp. It's just like people don't know Joe Biden's accomplishments. And it's very hard to get that message out there in today's environment. So let's talk about the accomplishments. And in fact, uh, they're very considerable. Um I drove across the country with my son this summer and you're in some of the national parks and you see and you hike on the trails that were made during the New Deal by the CCC, right? And you see the legacy. You drive across the country to kind of recognize the incredibleness, right, of the interstate highway system. None of this existed, right, in the 1940s. It was built in the 1950s. It was transformative. Joe Biden is going to have as significant a legacy of infrastructure in building the modern country 
that exists 30 years from now as Eisenhower does for the building of modern America in 1950s. There, there, is, there is no question about that. It is a titanic achievement. We finally had Infrastructure Week in America, and someday people are going to look and say, who built that road? Who built that bridge, right? When did this be? And the answer is going to be President Biden. That being said, voters do not throw ticker tape parades for their politicians for doing the things that they promised to do in the last election. They want to know what you're going to do in the next election. Now, there's a, there's a theory of economics that is really the only issue that matters in the assessment of an economy on behalf of the American people is the correlation between wages and prices. And right now, you know, there's, there's a huge sensibility that everything is unaffordable. And so the modern era of political campaigning began in 1896. And I, I've said this, I believe this. The biggest mistake off the line by a presidential campaign seeking re-election ever is branding this economy Bidenomics. So the vice president is talking about, well, you'll find out when we start talking about our accomplishments, what they are, as if the White House couldn't have started talking about them last month, but the accomplishment in the eyes of the American people is the achievement of Bidenomics, which the Biden campaign itself tattooed onto the president's forehead. And really, the most inexplicable of ways that, in my view, would never have happened if someone out there ever would have talked to somebody who lives in America outside of the beltway. Yeah, I think the economy is really confusing right now, not just for regular people, but for experts. Like, we don't know how to talk about it. By the way, I think a lot of political journalists, like, don't come from, like, economic or business backgrounds. And you frankly, like, a lot of the best economics correspondents out there aren't the ones covering presidential campaigns. I'm sure you saw that a lot. Man, I remember that from when the economy collapsed when I was out on McCain. Like, I was, you know, I wasn't CNN's only reporter on the presidential campaign, but I was, like, a 26-year-old kid covering, uh, you know, credit default swaps and how they're, like, tanking them. Housing market, like know, I don't, I didn't understand that stuff. Yeah, me either. I mean, I'd never heard the word before. I mean, I was 38 years old. I was running a presidential campaign, and you know, I thought I was worldly. You know, I thought I knew things about the economy, and I'll distinctly remember that the economy collapsed on the day that John McCain just coincidentally was meeting with his economics team in New York for a photo opportunity event, Mitt Romney, Meg Whitman, all these people were in the room, captains of industry and Wall Street, and none of them had a handle on what was happening. I mean, they were as oblivious as you and I were. And that, that was the defining moment of my political career in the sense of, I looked around and I was like, all of the experts have absolutely no clue What's happening? They didn't see it coming. We're in the middle of this live event. Like politically in that moment, it ended the, the, the McCain campaign, right? It had no chance after that. And I was very cognizant of that, you know, in, the, in, the, in that moment of time as a realist. And I, and I guess that it's the surrealism of this moment that's very, that's very bizarre sociologically in an unprecedented way. While I have you here in the last couple of minutes, um, you talked about Gen Z. Um, I have, uh, my kids are Gen Zers. I have, um, I have a, a couple in college, um, one younger one. 
They have a different sensibility, to say the least. Um, you are a bona fide millennial, right? I'm a bona fide Gen Xer, right? I, for everybody watching, I just, it, it just, I find it very disturbing that you have some gray hair, right? Right now, um, it's not making me feel good about myself, um, you know, on a number of fronts, but. Um, I, you know, one of my, uh, I taught at the University of Chicago for a semester, and one of my outstanding students wound up working for you, like a true, like superstar, like genius, one of the great people I've ever, like, you know, met in my life. And you're really connected to kind of the, the this generation and its, and its pulse. T tell us about who they are. I love that you uh, asked me that question. And by the way, like, like within millennials, there's old millennials and young millennials. I'm an old millennial, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're on the, I can't you're on claim the Gen to... X. You're on the Gen X boundary line. Yes, we're we're like mm, we like these ones the best, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember what it was like to have nothing to do and just get in the car and be like, I guess I'll listen to some CDs and just drive around. Um, <laughs> the uh, and now we don't have that with uh, social media. No, um, I don't claim to speak for all of Gen Z, but I do because of my Snapchat job, spend a lot of time thinking about Gen Z voters. Um, look, I think the places they spend their time are Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok. Those are the three things. You know, Twitter is not in that conversation, by the way. Uh, anywhere close. Um, they, as I mentioned before, uh, and John De La Volpe at Harvard has, does the Harvard Youth Poll twice a year. Very much an expert on this stuff. He has a great Substack. You should read. Um, they are different from millennials in that this is interesting. Millennials care and cared about changing the world and being uh, very public about their uh, political inclinations. Um, changing the workplace, lots of things. Um, Gen Z is very much self-interested in a different way. And, and by the way, I don't mean self-interested in terms of like narcissistic and vain. They came up in a world, uh, they became politically sentient in a world defined by Black Lives Matter, Donald Trump, um, political violence. Like a lot of young people actually think we're going to see a civil war uh, in our lifetimes, in their lifetimes. Um, and so, whereas I came up in like the Iraq war era and Barack Obama um, and in a world, in a political world where there were two parties and sometimes it could reach bipartisan agreement and there would be gangs in the Senate that would like maybe work on immigration. Um, they've never seen that. And so their world is on a political level, a lot of good versus evil, um, oppressor versus oppressed. Social justice is very important. Um, race and identity politics is very important. We're seeing this play out in a lot of the protests around um, Israel and, and the war in Gaza. Uh, younger people are way more inclined to support the Palestinians than, than older age groups are. Um, but they see politics through protest and conflict um, in their personal lives. And this is where I get to the self-interested part. Um, they care about their friends, their family, their bank account, getting a job. They're less interested, in other words, in waving a flag in their everyday lives for a political issue um, because they see a world where politics doesn't really work. Um, climate change, gun violence, access to the economy, and reproductive rights are, generally speaking, their top four issues. Um, the Biden campaign, again, is trying to make this uh, uh, their their reelection campaign, at least it's is targeted toward young people around uh, they're fighting for young people to have access to the economy, access to reproductive rights, and Republicans want to take those things away. And so the bottom line is that they need issues to get activated. They're not going to get fired up for individual candidates. They're not going to get fired up just because there's a D next to someone's name on a ballot. Um, they really feel like they need to be pulled into the process because they don't feel like they're impacted on their everyday lives a lot by the traditional political process. And, and again, that's a problem for Biden and Harris in 2020, because 
young people say over and over and over again, they don't feel like they can ever be able to afford a house. Uh, in, interest rates are too high. They can't even get by. Wages aren't keeping up with inflation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the economy isn't just an issue for like old people. Like young people want jobs, income, healthcare, 401k. That, they really want that because older generations had that and they don't feel like they're ever going to. Uh, Peter, uh, the name of this podcast is The Warning. And so we've started a uh, ending of this where I ask the people good enough to come on to give their warning, whatever it may be that you'd like to talk about, um, you know, to the good folks who are going to who are going to listen about this. There's there's a lot to be worried about. Um, and you're a person who's seen a lot about American politics and, you know, and a lot about a lot of other things as well. So I will throw it over to you to close. And just before you do, thank you so much uh, for joining me, the Warning Community, for a great conversation today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Um, I think my warning gets to something you said earlier in this conversation, which is um, I'll use the example of that Iowa trip. I spent most of my career as a reporter. I didn't cover the White House. I didn't cover Capitol Hill. I was living in DC, but I was always on airplanes, traveling around the country, in state capitals. <laughs> you know, I developed, I, I think, I like to think an ear for, uh, you know, just listening to voters. That's something I care about. Um, I think the cultural and economic differences between different parts of our country have never been greater. And I don't mean like, necessarily the political differences, but I mean, you know, when I went to the Iowa state fair, I was walking around with my camera crew. who were all like people from LA. Um, we stood out like sore thumbs, like the clothes we're wearing, <laughs> the tattoos are different. It's just like, I have been to Iowa 30, 40 times in my life. I just, I've never felt maybe, you know, I live in LA. I lived in New York. I live in D lived in DC. But my family's also from the South. Like my grandma's from Mississippi. Like I've spent a lot of time traveling. I care about, I do care about red states. And it just felt like, man, these people and those people are never going to be at the same bar. You know, sports is the only place where they're going to, uh, you know, hang out together. Um, so I, I just, I just feel like there's an increasing distance between um, the power elite in this country and um regular people and people that live in uh, zip codes where the incomes are slightly lower um, and the news diets are different and expectations are different um, and traveling. I've always said there should be people in college have study abroad. You go to like, I went to South Africa, people go to like Italy or Spain or whatever. I think people, there should be some sort of like AmeriCorps or Peace Corps program where like you go like red state people go to blue states and blue state people go to red states. I just think in-person conversations would make things a lot healthier. I think we're I think we're on, en route to that. I a lot of a lot of this warning community frequently asks what it is that I read. Uh, I read Puck News, and I encourage all of you to subscribe. It is a terrific, terrific publication, and it is there. You will find Peter Hamby and a great group of journalists who will help inform you about what's really happening in the world. Peter, thank you for being here today. Thanks, Steve. Enjoy New Hampshire.